Welcome to With Relish on the Headstuff Podcast Network. If this is your first time listening in, welcome to the show. We are a fortnightly food podcast focusing on all things that are great in the Irish food industry. I'm Harry Colley. And I'm Aoife Allen. This week on the programme, we'll be taking a closer look at all things seafood with some of the country's leading voices. Tell me about your household growing up. Was fish a delicious, luxurious treat? Was it just part of the kind of weekly cooking or was it punishment? It definitely wasn't. A part of the weekly cooking, like I now absolutely love fish, but I didn't love it growing up. And it was one of those things whereby my mum would always say, like, oh, we should always eat more fish. We mm. should eat more fish. We should eat more fish. We should Free as our brains, like. Exactly. And yeah. just like, and just because it's better. Than, it's like, it's something else that isn't meat, you know? And, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and it was one of those things. And we kind of never really did, but it was one of those things that I think we'd eat when we go out. But having said that, we were a big Best Shops family, and oh, yeah. um, it was kind of takeaway of choice, it was fish and chips. I had lovely Beshoff's um, scampi and chips on the seafront in Clontarf the other day, mm. uh, sitting in a lovely kind of mint green shelter and looking out on a sunny at Dublin Bay. It was the nicest that's thing that's happened to me woods, this month. Oh, it was gorgeous. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, fish is a weird one, isn't it? Like, growing up, I feel like we were still in that era. I'm like a year or two older than Harry, mm. so I probably remember this. <laughs> 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 um, I have this memory of fish being the thing that you had to endure rather than enjoy necessarily. I think when I was a child, it was we still had fish on Fridays when I was a young child. And then it was kind of probably in the like mid to late 90s, my dad started eating lots and lots of fish as a sort of a health Which thing fish? and an enjoyment thing when I was a kid. Yeah. I think we probably used to have place quite often mm-hmm. of a Friday. And I can't remember much about the preparation. It's kind of an old memory, um, but probably pan fried and probably super duper tasty yeah. and really nicely just simply treated. But it was not because everybody looked forward to having nice fish dinner. It was because we didn't eat meat on Fridays because I grew up in a very Catholic household. I just feel like attitudes are changing now, but it's actually a quite a late development. Um, and I still you feel think considering that we are an island nation it's kind of yeah. one of these things that comes up all the time like we are all coast yeah, and it's never really been a huge thing I remember when I, I used to work in Spain in a restaurant over there and one of the kind of things that they really proclaimed proudly in this Spanish restaurant was that all of the fish was Irish Oh, that's nuts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Isn't it nuts? So like all of the hake. Proudly we were serving, and confusedly. Proudly and confusedly. <laughs> and, the, and like they would say to me, they go, you're from Ireland? I'll go, yeah. Lovely go, fish you have over there. They said, the lobsters are blue. It was a big thing. Do you know, I said, the lobsters are blue. Yeah. And I said, yeah, yeah that, that's the colour of lobster. And they were like, no, 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 that's not the colour of our lobsters. But anyway, wow. that was the thing that they would sell proudly the fish in San Sebastian as Irish fish. Because of the quality. Because of the quality. Because the and and then I thought about kind of the stuff that we're getting at home. And working in restaurants for many years, I am familiar with the quality of the fish that we're getting in Ireland. And working over there, I was like, oh my God, this hake is so much better so than our hake. So we're exporting all the treats. Yeah, 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 yeah We're absolutely. sending all the treats away. Okay, mm-hmm. that's nuts. Yeah, I guess it was for a long time considered a sort of a poor man's meat, not a delicious, lovely thing. And even the way we eat fish now in Ireland, like lots of restaurants do do a lovely, simple treatment that does it justice but a lot of restaurants also kind of dress it up quite a bit and I'm very guilty of that when I cook it at work it's often in batter in some way which is mm-hmm. really lovely but it, it's not celebrating the, it, it in its purest the fishness in its purest yeah I yeah. know what you mean yeah. so I love to do an El Ceviche or like mm-hmm. do a fish taco or you know that kind of thing or a fish sambo or something and I just feel like maybe I even need to learn a little bit about just celebrating fish as at its simplest because it is such a delicious thing I'm going to share something very interesting with you now Harry I was reading a collection of short stories the other day yeah 
And one of the stories in the book, it's a collection by Frank O'Connor, who's this um, kind of renowned short story author. He had a story called Fish for Friday, which I vaguely remembered actually seeing. It was the title story in a smaller collection my folks had at home when I was a kid. Yeah. So I rooted out and I thought, sure, I'll have a look at this and I'll see if there's any insight oh, in there. You're for us. such a dork. Such a nerd. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's two guys talking and I think they're in West Cork and I'm not going to do a man's no, voice don't. or a West Cork accent no. <laughs> because I think that would be taken too far. But here we go. So the two lads are called Tom Hurley and Ned. And I don't know Ned's surname. Anyway. Anything you want in town, Tom, he shouted from the car. What's that, Ned? Replied a voice from within. And Tom himself, a small, round, russet-faced man, came out with his wrinkled grin. I have to go into town. I wondered, was there anything you wanted? No, no, Ned, thanks. I don't think so, replied Tom in his nervous way, all the words trying to come out together. All we wanted was fish for dinner. And the Jordans are bringing that. That stuff, exclaimed Ned, making a face. I sooner it was them than me. Och, isn't it the devil, Ned? Tom sputtered with a similar expression of disgust. The damn smell hangs around the shop all day. But what the hell else can you do on a Friday? Are you going for a spin? So I read that and I thought, yeah, that's what we thought about fish when I was growing up. And then I finished the story last night and actually they... the. The In reason the end, it's they like titled fish. that no, they really <laughs> don't. The two main characters find fish for Friday synonymous with church oppression, oppression by their wives since they got married, and generally just the decline of their freedom. Oh Jesus. <laughs> so they're holding it accountable for a lot more than it is. They are, but it's a really, really interesting little insight. I like it. Yeah, it was gorgeous. It. But so, anyway, so on the show, to talk to us about fish and maybe Ireland's growing love of fish and how it's changed from, you know, when you were a baby <laughs> to, to now. We have got Millie Powell. She's coming on to talk to us from Fish Shop about what it's like to be a smelly. And she's giving us some nice pairings with fish. And yeah. she's also breaking the rules. She's drinking red wine with fish. And Get she's giving us recommendations. Town. And, and she's chilling it too, I think. That'll be a really nice one because we all have this kind of ingrained idea that you just drink the white wine with the fish and it'd be lovely to expand our yeah, horizons a little exactly. bit exactly and that. just kind of like explore nice fish and wine together a little bit more and kind of like yeah just to, to not be so bound by those rules and then the same way that you think you, you were talking about like you know not being battering fish and not doing you know these things to disguise fish but actually the kind of exploring fish and then exploring kind of like different ways that you can enjoy it and that it's not just a rigid format and like I mean I still love my fish and chips and that's what I grew yeah. up on but also you know Drinking red wine with fish. Yeah, <laughs> but I like drinking more wine. <laughs> so we're also going to have on Billy Smith, who's a Galway-based angler and salmon farming activist. And he's going to tell us a little bit about, I suppose, some of the less palatable realities behind salmon farming in Ireland and also whether we can look at an organic farm salmon label and have total faith in that and, total and trust in it. that. So he's got some interesting insights to share with us on that as well. And then we also had Niall Sabangi. On the show, who Ian, who's our producer, spoke to. We're looking forward to hearing a lot about that and hearing about what his life and food is all about. Because I know that he, I've actually worked with a younger brother of his before and I know that his father was in the industry as well. So like their old school Dublin restaurant family. Be great to hear from them. Cool. Let's crack on with it. So on with the show. The relationship between wine and food can often be a complicated one for the uninitiated. To continue our seafood theme, we're joined in studio with Millie Powell, manager of Fish Shop in Smithfield, Dublin, to talk about some common misconceptions with pairing seafood and wine. Millie, welcome to With Relish. Hi. We're delighted to have you in the show. Thanks, Millie, for coming in. So, Millie, tell us, how did you get into wine in the first place? Where does the love for wine come from? Um, I think my love for wine first stemmed from my first job in Fallon and Burn, actually, on Exchequer Street. I used to work as a cheesemonger, and that was kind of my first 
kind of to say awakening my awakening (laughs) 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 like Uh light beam coming out of my head Um, there was a wine cellar in the shop so basically I was kind of surrounded by a lot of wine a lot of wine on the floor and I was seeing all these bottles of wine that I'd never kind of come across before and naturally as being a cheesemonger you kind of want to have a bit of knowledge because it's a common question that comes up a lot like customers are always like what what wine should I put with this and then I'd be standing there going just let me I'll just ask somebody for you Um, but anyway I basically used to totally turn my nose up at wine, thought it was absolutely foul, <laughs> thought it was like what? so acidic. I used to be like, oh, it gives me headaches, horrible. And I remember saying this to the woman who manages the wine bar there and she was like, she's this really, really fiery, um, like Argentinian woman. She was like, you're crazy. She was <laughs> like, of course you like wine. <laughs> she was like, <laughs> like screaming at me. And um, so she made a pact with me. She was like, every night when you finish your shift, come down here or come out to the, we had like smoking area in the backyard. And she was like, um, come out there and I will find you something that you like. I'm pretty sure she got this right on the very first go. Mm. She like poured, she was like, what do you drink? Red or white? And I was like, red. And um, poured me a glass of red wine. And immediately I was like, this is so nice. I think I think what I was, was like, um, I'm pretty sure it was a, it was a Rioja. Okay. Um, cool. And like Rioja is one of the most excellent regions in the world yeah. to get wine from. Um, and it kind of stemmed from there. I just started drinking a little bit, bits and bits more wine in the shop while I was working there and kind of got into it a bit. And I think actually what happened was she kind of explained to me, she was like, I think your issue is that you've been drinking a lot of like really, really bad wine, yeah. <laughs> like really yeah. cheap. Because like, you have to remember, I was like 18 when I worked here. So if yeah. I was drinking wine, it was whatever my friends were like we're buying picking up in, in like spar. a center yeah. or a yeah, spar. Yeah, 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 you know, like something Stripping like... your stomach out for you. Yeah, yeah <laughs> literally. Like, um, and I think it kind of stemmed from... It really, really ignited the passion in me when I started working for Fish Shop because what they, what I saw them doing there was kind of bringing in wines that other restaurants didn't have and they had this real passion for it. Like, you know, I'd see my boss talking about them and he'd be like, almost giddy, he'd be like, yeah. oh, we got this wine in and yeah. uh, he'd be like bumbling around the place talking about it. And I think working with people who are so, so passionate about it really kind of ignited that in me too and then just grew from there. And amazing. I remember my first wine module that I did when I was in college and we were working with this amazing woman whose name escapes me now, but she was very good. <laughs> she was fabulous. She was brilliant. Um, Whoever you are. <laughs> I miss you. So we were a bunch of kind of like awkward 20-year-old <laughs> students sitting there kind of a bit like afraid to say anything, afraid to like put yourself out there, mm, especially yeah. when it comes to something like wine. Because wine mm. like historically and just like culturally is so elitist. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's one of the very kind of distinguishing features of Fraser Crane is that he's a big wino and you're like, well, okay, well, that's wine not, a, it, yeah. well, not necessarily a wine <laughs> sorry, but a wine connoisseur. Yeah. And it's yeah. not necessarily the most kind of like likable characteristic in a person. No. So we were all sitting there, sitting around, and we we're like, okay, this is like really nerve wracking and we don't know what's going on. And I've never had to describe a wine before. And then the um, instructor, she starts like swirling a glass in front of it and she brings it slowly. She goes, flinty. <laughs> warm, warm buttered brioche. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, and the, and she was just like going on a mad one, yeah. and we were just like, "Come on, that's girl. actually step it back." That's step, a, but, step but, but she was way so right. back for the kids, for the kids. But it, yeah. she, I think she kind of threw us in the deep end, and then we yeah. kind of got there. And eventually, by the end of it, I kind of found that when it came to examinations, it was that it was like half science half romance yeah 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 absolutely that that if you were able to kind of like take some of the characteristics (laughs) of this wine and be like this is a particularly like uh stocky kind of red fruit or dark Mm -hmm. red fruits and you'd be like okay well that's probably from bordeaux so then Mm -hmm. you can start like doing your food pairings and things by saying like oh well this would be fabulous with lentils and (laughs) red and duck and things like that and so but that was how i kind of learned about food pairing was kind of taking the mick a little bit do you know where you're just like trying to figure out what this wine is and then pairing a food from exactly that region yeah, but yeah. could you let us know a little bit something more about how you would pair 
points. I suppose for me, especially, I, I work in a seafood restaurant. So a lot of my knowledge is kind of what goes well with seafood. Um, but I think the strictest rule you need to follow is that you want your wine and your food to complement one each, each other. You don't want them to ever compete with one another. So the most basic rule is kind of like you don't want to be putting the most amazing wine with the most amazing meal. You probably want to be like pairing an amazing wine with a kind of average meal and then allowing the wine to complement what it is that you're eating or you just you want you want the wine and the food yeah complement one another that's yeah. the biggest that's the biggest kind of rule to follow in your food pairing yeah the misconception is that fish and white wine have to go together mm-hmm. like you cannot yeah. put a red wine with fish it's totally sacrilegious and that's just not the case at all okay. and something that really strikes me is that we sell so much red wine for a seafood in shop. fish shop yeah yeah, yeah. For, and i don't worry that's because because i just i always notice a trend from working with wine that Irish people tend to lean a bit more into drinking red wine anyway. Okay. But we sell we sell a lot of red wine for someone who makes seafood mm-hmm. for their restaurant. If you're gonna put a red wine with a fish, for example, you're not gonna put like a big meaty mm-hmm. red wine with it. Like save that for your steak. Go for stuff that are like lighter to medium bodied but still have like loads of flavour. Give us some, Give us some nice examples, examples there. <laughs> yeah. No. Say if you wanted to pair a red with some fish at home and so yeah. you say this is just like a Thursday evening, you're at home and you're <laughs> cooking something yourself and you picked up some place. Yeah. Do you know and you just want to pan fry some place with some butter and you want it very simple with spuds and some greens. What okay. am I drinking? I would say because you're using butter mm-hmm. and place tends to be kind of a nice kind of it is quite a buttery textured fish as well. I would go with something like a Grenache for that. So Grenache is basically just a red from Spain. They're totally bananas about Grenache. They mm-hmm. kind of make a lot of it in bulk. But what you get with that wine is it's really, really light. It's very fruity. But what you get is with red wines, you have tannins. So tannins are softened by fat. So if I was using anything like butter or something like having potatoes, like anything that has like a high fat content, a red wine that has a little bit of tannin would probably work well there because the fat will soften the tannin. If you have a red wine that's high in tannin, what you'll get is like a drying across the top of your teeth and that's usually like yeah. a good indication that the wine's high in tannin. tannin is it from the skin? Yeah, yeah. Mm. It, it, you get it more at red wines because they keep the skins, the pip and the stem in contact with each other and that's what gives wine, it's red wine, it's colour. Uh, you get a little bit in white wine but not so much so the tannin always tends to be lower in a white wine. The easiest rule I always find is you're going to get tannins with red and you're going to get acidity with white mm-hmm. that's kind of like the easiest yeah. way to decipher the two of them and like let's yeah. think now so for in fish shop you guys are obviously selling a lot of delicious deep fried fish yes so not <laughs> not being strict on red or white what would be your go-to if you were having like a fish burger with like a caper what's that what's it not caper and what's the tartar sauce tartar. Is what it's called. thank you <laughs> if you have something that's oily like fried fish or a fish that's just oily in general like tuna or mackerel you probably want a nice acidic what happens is if you have a wine that has like a nice high acidity, it will cut through that kind of greasiness yeah. and the oiliness of the fish and they complement each other really, really well. So I would probably have a glass of Chacoli, which is a Basque white wine. It's slightly effervescent. It's kind of like, think of it like the Sprite of the wine world. It's, it's really like, it gives you... <laughs> That's <laughs> trashy. <laughs> no, I love it. They have, they have a museum for Chacoli yeah. in Basque. They're like yeah. totally... I lived in the Basque country yeah, for a little while. Yeah. It's like cider and Chacoline is yeah. everywhere. But what, what you what you get there as well is like, they would like kind of mass produce and make a lot of kind of just cheap kind of bog standard Chacoli and it, that's totally fine. But what the one we have is a bit more kind of like a boutique kind yeah. of version mm. of a Chacoli. How, and, how would you um, spell Chacoli for anybody who wants to... T-X-A-K-O-L-I. 
Texacoli is kind of like yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, we get a lot of customers that are like just this one here yeah. and uh, <laughs> you're, you're, they're going I can't say it yeah. it's just, ah right yeah, yeah, it's a it, yeah it's a tricky one it's just, that's a yeah. really common thing actually when people are ordering wine feeling intimidated totally. oh yeah well, okay and how mm. do you I mean is that something that you want to kind of get rid of that people would feel yeah. so uncomfortable that they just say that one and they're almost afraid to yeah, no, attempt a pronunciation What's the way around? Just like going back on what Harry was saying earlier about that there's this kind of idea that wine is kind of for older affluent Mm. people and people who drink wine are a bit kind of like Snooty. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, um, like, like my friends joke about it with me because they know I'm not snooty about it at all. But that's, but that is the negative connotation that goes with it. That yeah. people that are into wine are kind of a bit snooty. I think actually what's happening and it's really, really lovely is, I think places like what we're doing, like Fish Shop, and then there's those very amazing little, uh, wine like wine bars opening in the city as well. It's kind of opening up this idea that wine is for everybody, and they're kind of trying to introduce younger people into drinking it and the thing you need to realize as well is that there's so many people making wine who are actually quite young who are mm-hmm. like in their late 20s their early 30s and they're doing really cool exciting things about it this is a note i made and i felt really funny writing it but i was like it's just really cool and i was like i used the word cool there because it is like they're doing these really deadly things and it's really really any, interesting any industry and- whereby there's kind of innovation and like commitment in a huge way like that because like wine is life for so many people yeah. you know it's just absolutely like we you know drink it whether we know <laughs> that we're drinking good wine or bad wine yeah, or anything yeah. like wine is being drunk by absolutely everybody but there's just like it's been a, a tradition that's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old so like that's cool in itself one question that I would love to ask you is what's your favourite wine at the moment something that can be bought <laughs> in, a, in a shop uh, so I would go with a Morgan which is a Cote from Beaujolais Beaujolais is in Burgundy. It's basically an appellation. Um, this particular guy has probably the best allocation of land in in Beaujolais. You can get it in the corkscrew. Great. It's twenty nine ninety five, I think, which is really really good for a bottle of wine, especially at that standard. Um, it's really really good. Serve it chilled. It's a red wine. Uh, Coach Bui tends to be. It's basically it's a Gamay grape, which is made to make Pinot Noir, but it would be much much lighter and yeah, not as kind of over the top as a Pinot Noir, especially an aged Pinot Noir. This one is from 2015 at the moment, I believe. And that was quite a hot year for them. So the alcohol content is actually quite high in it. It's, okay. about, it's about 14% this year. But the joy with Beaujolais is it's so, so light and lovely and fruity that you mm. kind of forget that the alcohol content is really high. So you're kind of, you're kind of like, you're kind of knocking yeah. them back and you're yeah. not really realising that you're okay. getting totally slosh. But uh, that is a great one. And on a hot day, it's lovely. Spell it first so that people at home Morgan, so it's M-O-R-G-O-N is what's nice. on the label. If you go into the shop, that's what yeah. you'll see. It's kind of like a pure white label. It has a waxed red lid. It's a really Christ. beautiful bottle as well. Lovely. Um, Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. We're You're more than welcome. Head over the corkscrew now. Yeah. <laughs> Millie, thank you so much. This has thank been you. an education. Yeah. Really, really interesting stuff. Great. Thank you so much for coming thank in. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, you will know we like to explore all areas of the food industry, not just restaurants. As this week's episode is based around the sea, we are delighted to be joined on the line with Galway-based angler and salmon farming activist Billy Smith to speak about the Irish fishing industry and some of the problems it is currently facing. Hi, Billy. Thanks a million for coming on the show. How are you doing? I'm great, thanks. Yeah. Come here. I wanted to start off by asking you, what is an angler and how does that vary from any other kind of fisherman? An angler is a person that uses a rod and line. A fisherman is a man that uses uh, a trawler and a net. And so as an angler, are you would the yields potentially be much lower than you would be if you were working on a trawler or something like that? A lot of anglers would fish on lakes from boats for that, but uh, a lot of other anglers would fish on just from the bank and wouldn't ever venture out on a, on a boat. 
I would be one of those. I, I wouldn't be a lake angler. And Camille, so what's a typical day in your job? A typical day would be if you're going fishing for salmon, the best thing to do is get up early in the morning when there's very little people around and the Salmon tend to take better early in the morning and sort of late in the evening before dark. I'm only living about seven minutes away from the river, Galway City. During the summer, I I would get up at six o'clock maybe and and go down the river. And And, uh, tell me, how did you start out fishing? Well, my brother was an angler before me. He finally brought me down when I was 10 years of age and I went down one night and it was pitch dark. And there was about eight or nine other anglers down there that were all at the same thing, fishing illegally, of course. <laughs> so it was an experience and the excitement was great on the first night I was down there and that's when I got the book for the fish. And I've been fishing ever since and I'm 63 years of age now. It's a beautiful pastime. You're out in the fresh air, you're meeting loads of different people and where we fish in the centre of Galway City, it's on a public walkway. So we're meeting thousands of people there every week from all over the world. There's busloads and busloads of tourists pass us and, and we chat to people from all over the world who ask us all about the river and the salmon. A lot of them can't believe that you can actually catch salmon in the middle of a city. So I'm like totally enamored by this because I'm like, I love fish, absolutely love it and I actually spent quite a lot of my childhood on the sea but I have never once been fishing and I'm like quite yeah. ashamed to say it now but it's true. It's a funny thing, isn't it? Um, I think I mentioned this to you before, Billy. I feel like for an island nation, we've so much coast and we've so many waterways. And yet, not that many Irish people fish. I think it's changing now, but growing up, I felt like people weren't mad about eating fish. Do you have any kind of thoughts on what that's about? The reason they're not eating as much fish now in Ireland is because it's got too expensive. Mm. I I tell you, the reason for that is because 10% of the trawlers in Ireland have 80% of the quota. And a lot of them bring their catches to Scotland, where it's cheaper to process. So there isn't as much land in Ireland as such. So that's why the prices in Ireland are more expensive than elsewhere. So there's actually a low supply, even though there's access to a big supply in a sense. You know, you mentioned it's a pastime, but you also, I believe you're very involved in various fishing associations and also in the campaign on caged salmon farming. So can you tell us a bit about the changes you've seen over the decades around fishing? When I started fishing back in the early 60s, there was an abundance of sea trout and salmon right up until the late 1980s. And there was a massive sea trout angling industry all along the West Coast where thousands of tourists would come every year just fish for the sea trout alone. Uh, In the mid-80s, then, salmon farms were introduced into the west of Ireland. And within two years uh, of the salmon farms arriving in Connemara and Mayo and places like that, the sea trout stocks collapsed due to being infested with sea lice from the farm salmon. As a result of that... Uh, a lot of jobs were lost in hotels, guest houses mm. and pubs and tackle shops, in, in Connemara especially, where the industry was fairly popular. So the, the salmon farming community have denied that all along that they were responsible for the collapse of the sea trout stocks. But it's no coincidence that the collapse of the sea trout and the, the salmon happened a num- only a short number of years after the salmon farms were introduced. And it's been proven scientifically since that the sea lice are the the main factor in the decline of our uh, sea trout stocks. What are the sea lice? I'm just, I'm, I'm a bit of well, a dunce here. And sea lice are a crustacean that live off the skin and the, the blood, the nutrients of salmonites. And only they're only a bit bigger 
than the size of a, a match head. When they have so many hosts to breed on in the one area, they multiply in their billions. So it's to do with the fact and that when you're when you're farming the fish, then they're so, because they're so intensively reared that the sea life can spread much easier. Exactly. And then that's going into the natural stocks that are kind of around and sharing the same waterways. Yeah. Is that the case? What happens is that salmon smalls that are migrating out of the rivers in April and May, that is the critical time when they have to pass through the salmon farms. And if the salmon aren't treated for sea lice before April and May, it means that all those smalls coming down will have to run the gauntlet, go through clouds of sea lice, which will attach to them. And what happens then is that as the salmon are travelling to the North Atlantic, as the sea lice feed on them, they will start to get weaker and they will be picked off then by predators along the way. So it's very hard to then trap sea lice in the North Atlantic to find ones that, that are weak and dying because by the time you try to trap them, the predators have eaten them all. And the sea lice actually transfer diseases from the farm salmon to the wild salmon as well. They become the vectors of the fish diseases. Is there a way, do you think, that we can responsibly farm salmon or farm fish and not more positive an alternative, alternative. Is there an alternative, alternative method? method. Thank method. you very much for giving me that well, word. There, yeah. there is. Um, the, the salmon farmers have all got organic certification at the moment and they make out that this is a sustainable way of farming salmon. But actually it's not because they still have to use the same pesticides and the same antibiotics that they use on non-organic to kill the sea lice. And as well as that, salmon farming can never really be sustainable because of the fact that they have to use between three and five tons of wild fish to make one ton of fish pellet to feed the farm salmon. That's not sustainable. So it can only become sustainable if the salmon farmers decide to start farming in on-land closed containment system where there is no interaction between wild salmon and farm salmon. So, like, if you have salmon in closed containment systems on land, it means that there's no sea lice, so therefore they don't have to use any pesticides. There's very little disease, so they won't have to use antibiotics. There will be no escapes. One of the major problems in Norway and Scotland at the moment is that the farm salmon are escaping and they're breeding with the wild salmon in the river. So they're destroying the gene pool of the wild salmon, which has taken thousands and thousands of years to develop. And by having them in closed containment systems, there'll be no escapes. Are there any closed containment systems already in Ireland? There's none in Ireland, Mm. but they're in Denmark and they're in Canada and the US. And actually, there are closed containment systems for other types of fish in Ireland, but not for salmonite. Now, the salmon farmers do have closed containment systems for salmon, all right, but they only grow them to about a kilo in weight, you know, uh, and then they transfer them then to the open sea cages. And that's where the problem then arises. Is there any such pressure from the Irish government on the salmon farming industry here? No, none whatsoever. The Irish government are trying to expand the salmon farming industry in Ireland. And that was the idea of them proposing a 15,000 tonne capacity salmon farm for Galway Bay in 2011 and 12. And we had a four-year campaign here in Galway. A committee was set up in January 2013 and for my sins I was elected chairman of of that committee and we campaigned for four years fighting that proposal and we eventually got it stopped in December 2015. And Billy, on what grounds was the proposal defeated? Well, the reason given in the end that 
because it was a 15,000 ton capacity salmon farm, a number of months beforehand, the Marine Institute had laid down new guidelines for salmon farms in Ireland and that no salmon farm was to produce more than five to 7,000 tonnes of farm salmon. So that was the excuse they used okay. at the time. We had seriously damaged the salmon farming industry in the country because of our campaign. Okay. And I would believe that they just wanted it to get rid of the Galway Bay one. But yeah. they're still proposing to put other ones, similar size ones, off Gola Island in Donegal and off Inish Turk in Mayo. And those ones are 5,000 to 7,000 tonne biomass. Now, we believe that this five to 7,000 tonne biomass is a bit of a con job because what will happen is that they will put in, say, 100,000 smolts in November, 100,000 smolts in December, 100,000 smolts in January, 100,000 in February. And as they grow, they will harvest in the first lot and they will keep adding to so that they will never have more than 7,000 tonnes in so the summer. they'll have a huge population but they'll be staggering the growth. Exactly. And you could end up with salmon farms over a period of 12 to 18 months that had actually 15,000 tonnes gone through it. So Just not all at once. Exactly. And Billy, this has been really interesting and very informative and I think it'll be a bit of an eye-opener for a lot of people to hear this interview. So thank you so much for your time and for joining us on With Relish today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you and mine too. Each week on With Relish, we invite someone in who has made an impact on the Irish food industry to speak with us. To continue our maritime adventure, we are joined by one of Ireland's most creative and resourceful restaurateurs of the last few years. Noel Sabongi, owner of Rock Lobster Claw and now Claw Poke Bar. Thanks for coming in. Thank uh, you very much. The first thing I kind of want to ask you is that Ireland is an island surrounded by water and we have some of the best fishing waters in Europe. Why does it seem like we don't necessarily have a major palate for seafood? Yeah, it's amazing because Ireland is an island and we are originally an island nation. Um, but we kind of fell out of love with the sea and I suppose it kind of goes back to both the famine and Catholicism really um, with the with the famine the first people to leave were those with boats and they got on the boats and they left wow. Ireland um, and then those who were left that could fish um, sold their rigs sold their nets but even back then you know whatever fish we caught them whatever we farmed the land was taken in taxes so we never really got to enjoy the bounty back in those days and then kind of after the famine then this is kind of giving you the history story yeah, behind yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, we then had Catholicism, of course, which, you know, forced us that we must eat fish on a Friday. Yeah. But nobody knew how to fish and no one knew how to prepare fish. So what we had was this thing called a washboard. Now, in Spain, you have salt cod, which is absolutely delicious yeah, and done yeah. beautifully. So we did something similar in Ireland. It was called a washboard. It was done from ling, which is a similar you know, species of cod, blue ling. But we didn't do it very well. And then it was transported by horse and cart, you know, through from, from say, the west or the, or yeah. the east coast all the way into, like, you know, the Midlands, you know, in the rain and the damp. By the time and it gets there. And then we'll get damp and we'll get smelly and we'll get horrible. So, but then people had to eat it on a Friday, whether they liked to or not. Yeah. So, you know, they were forced to eat fish. So there was this kind of, every time you say fish to an Irish person, they automatically hold the nose or make it like it's going to smell. And fish doesn't smell. It smells like the sea. Good fish anyway. Yeah. It smells like the sea. Um so I think the combination of those two things, just we just kind of fell fell out of love 
with the sea and with being an island nation. I want to kind of go back to your beginnings in the food industry. So your dad was a restaurateur as well. Tell me about him and his background as well. Okay, so my dad's from Cairo originally um, and worked in the Hilton in Cairo before moving to, he worked in Luzanne and France and Spain all around the world with the Hilton and then settled in London as a manager of the Hilton on Park Lane where he met my mum, a lovely Irish nurse as all Irish <laughs> nurses were in the 70s. And... Um, they moved back to Ireland and then yeah he started opening restaurants here back to like things like very early you know restaurants and nightclubs in Dublin like Legs and Cats and the Pink Elephant and then George's Bistro which yeah. was probably the most kind of famous restaurant which was there for a couple of decades um, all the way through so yeah he's been in it and you presumably then grew up in those kitchens and we, got yeah yeah we were dragged up you know dra- <laughs> dragged up in the kitchens uh, eating monkfish and, and, uh, and prawns um, we grew up in those kitchens it was never our dad's intention for us to go in the business and we didn't want to but he couldn't really keep us out you know even at an early age I was kind of sneaking into the kitchen and the guys would you know let me peel carrots or potatoes or something in the corner of the kitchen it was just it was just destined to be I suppose and from there you spent a bit of time in the UK yourself then as well yeah like um, from there so I trained in in my dad's restaurants while I was still at school um, and kind of did day release so I kind of qualified as a chef what age would you have been I was in the kitchen when I was 14 Um, so I was kind of qualified as a chef before doing my leaving cert um, but even during school, I took the transition year out, fourth year out, and um, I went and worked in kitchens in France. So I worked in Bordeaux and Paris uh, for the year, and then came back and finished school off and stuff. And then went to college in the UK. I uh, went to Westminster, which is like a you know really good catering college. Mm. I did hotel management, um, but I did yeah, patisserie skills at the same time. So I kind of like kind of doubled up my um, course time <laughs> just for the crack. Like, and then while I was there, then I worked in you know um, loads of loads of great restaurants with some really great chefs and really kind of you know historic kind of faces and stuff so it was amazing by the time you'd gotten back to Ireland had your dad kind of wrapped up his businesses at no no stage he was or? still no he, he he was still in in, in full swing so we had um, he just opened Romanza on Leasing Street at the time so I came back over and got involved in that and started running that with him and then we kind of worked together for about 10 12 years before I kind of started doing little bits and pieces how is that relationship working with you yeah dad? brilliant really okay. brilliant yeah absolutely brilliant yeah like I mean, we're very very similar scarily sometimes but really good like you know we, we get on great and he taught me well well I think he taught me well <laughs> and then after that then tell me what happened next when did you decide to kind of branch out by yourself as well we had a little uh, we had a little stint uh, just before the the recession kind of kicked in down in Drogheda okay. um, we had a harebrained scheme to, to go to Drogheda and open a <laughs> restaurant timing was very ill timed uh, it was literally just before the recession of course with Drogheda being a commuter town the yeah, yeah. loser jobs were everyone in Drogheda basically so um that was uh, that was an interesting little phase of my life, um, and then after that, kind of came back to Dublin. I worked out in Hoth for a while, and then opened Rock Lobster in Donnybrook, and we had Rock Lobster for a few years. That was um, it. W- it was great, and um, yeah, kind of spurred on the the kind of the wholesale side of the business. Yeah. Um, had you always intended to go the kind of seafood route and what got you into No, like in it was never it was never a conscious decision. Seafood's always been my passion. It's always what I'd, I'd eat and it's always, you know, kind of memories of being a kid. It's always, you know, we're brought up eating, you know, crabs on our doorstep, you know, smashing them up with big hammers and things <laughs> like that. Like, I mean, that was just normal for us. Whereas at the time in Ireland, it wouldn't have been, you know, yeah. people, you know, they'd walk by in the front porch, like, and we were there with the domestic hammers, smashing crabs up, you know, and, like, <laughs> sucking, them, sucking the shells like savages. You know, the neighbours would walk by, kind of going, oh, God, like the poor devils, you know, they can't afford <laughs> to eat, like, we're eating crabs and lobsters and prawns. So it's always just been a passion. And then when Rock Lobster, um, the model Rock Lobster was built on, that it was affordable lobster, so I had to buy in huge bulk, and there was nobody in Ireland that could buy the amount of lobsters that I needed. So yeah. um, it kind of spurred me on to 
start importing and buying lobsters from boats and you know dealing with the boats directly um, we had dabbled a little bit when we were in Drawdex we were so close to Clarehead. Head yeah. So we'd start buying fish down there and obviously saw the advantage in buying fish uh, directly just for just for the sheer quality alone. So that was kind of, it was, I suppose, a combination of both those things that kind of, it kind of escalated from there. You know, we ended up after the first year of Rock Lobster and um, we were 100% you know, self-sustained. So we bought all of our, all of our fish ourselves. Right. Um, and then from there it kind of grew then. So now we supply about 15, 20 restaurants in Dublin city centre as well. The same kind of ethos. Then who does your fishing? Obviously, you're not there out about yourself. No, <laughs> no, I've I've gone out a few times for a little spin. Yeah, yeah. Of um, but it's more really with a bag of cans uh, <laughs> and hanging out with fishermen than, uh, than for the fish. But um, so most of our fish comes from the east coast. Um, we buy off four or five different boats on the east coast. We do buy off the west coast as well, and we also bring fish in from everywhere, from the Maldives or from Rangis in Paris to. Um, markets on the Shetland Islands yeah. um, we try and keep it as close as we can to the east coast um, some really good boats really good gear who are fishing really really sustainably up along the coast here so I suppose the with the wholesale side of it the idea is that um, we keep on buying from small boats here and try and re-encourage the day boat industry similar to what you see in Cornwall and you know in, on the coast south coast of Eng- England um, and see if we can't um, get that going back here again If Irish diners are out be it in a seafood restaurant or just a regular restaurant and if they are looking for fish, most of the time, the only offering they're going to get is either cod or salmon. Whose fault is that? Is it the consumer's fault? Is the restaurateur's fault? Is it you know the fisherman's fault? Why why are we so limited to what we're eating okay, at the moment? It's it's consumer driven, mm. definitely. It, it's consumer driven because, but you know, it, it's as much the fishmonger in in the supermarket to the buyers in the big soup supermarkets to, you know, and then I suppose it's the fear of of the restaurateurs to put something different on the menu. You know, you could put, say, we mentioned ling earlier on. Ling, it's a fantastic, bountiful fish. Brilliant for frying. So, you know, fried ling, you know, like like you have your fish and chips. Absolutely cracking. You hardly re- recognise even between, between that and cod. It'd be better if we used if we used ling than we used cod, sustainable stocks, etc. But people are, you know, they want their cod and chips. Yeah. And then restaurants are afraid that, oh, no, you know, Mary's been having cod and chips for 20 years now. Yeah. You know, we can't start giving her something funny. You know, these fish aren't funny. These are native species. I don't think fault lies with any one party. It's a kind of a it's it's a general thing, but there is definitely a shift towards it. You see restaurants um, now, like you know, you can take Bang and Bagsy for example, and they've got megrum and white sole on their menu. Now, these fish are so plentiful in the Irish waters, but you never see them yeah. on Irish fish stalls or on menus. You know, they all go to France and they all go to Spain, and where they get you know they they get a real premium price for them because they are a beautiful sole. So you see people like that, you know, Nile there selling uh, selling great fish or like that. I mean, there's there, there's loads. I mean, you know, Bastable, Super. Sue, Luna, you know, there's loads of great restaurants around that are kind of, you know, using more and more local yeah. produce. Peter and Fish Shop's another great example of it. We actually had Millie Powell on the show earlier on, who was speaking to us about how to how to pair wine and fish and stuff like that. Okay, so, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, it's a great great restaurant. Yeah, no, they're, yeah, they're, they're they're super guys. So I saw in an interview with you before that you said you wanted to slap the posh out of seafood. What did you mean by that? Like, and why okay. does it need to be done? Why does it need to be done? I don't know. I always find so I love eating oysters and I love e- e- eating shellfish. Yeah, I hate. Uh, I love when I'm abroad and I'm in the south of France or I'm in you know Spain or anywhere. I can just rock up to some little hole in the wall and I can eat some oysters and I can have a glass of wine and there's no pomp or circumstance or this big thing about it. If I want to do the same in Ireland, it's not the same. Yeah. There's white tablecloth and there's brown bread and there's curled butter and there's waiters and there's a wine list bigger than a Bible. Like I mean, this big <laughs> thick thing come, come, comes out to the table. 
and I feel there's two, like, you know, for an island nation, seafood should be accessible, open, affordable, and just easy to enjoy. With everything else, it, it just, it, they just don't match, you know, we're, we're a seafaring nation, we should be able to just enjoy it easily. So I kind of want to just break down the barriers of it and make it accessible, so slap the posh out of it. And that brings me on to Claude then. If people haven't been in Claude, it's definitely the smallest restaurant in Ireland I've been in. Kind of describe smallest it seafood bar in the world, some have said. Really? Yeah, some have said. Try and describe okay, it Okay, so people. it's no wider than your domestic uh, hallway corridor. We sit about 12 to 14 people. Uh, we have had 20 in one time, which was fun. <laughs> um, so it's a tiny little crab shack. Um, the idea behind it was that I was in Tampa Bar with some friends who were over visiting and we weren't able to get chowder or, or oysters pretty much anywhere. So this tiny premises came up and we said, well, listen, we can definitely do something with it. We'll, you know, just, we'll just do oysters and really good chowder and let that be it. And from there, it kind of grew into what it is now. It's been, you know, we've been so lucky and you know it's been so well received um, but it is what it is it's, yeah. it's a corridor you know everything's on view there's nothing to hide <laughs> um, from how the chefs because you're because you're physically in the kitchen um, so there's nothing to hide like so we try and keep that ethos that there's something to hide from what we're doing to either the food so we don't so everything's very very you know nothing's complicated there's no there's nothing complicated about what, what we do or, or the food we cook it's super simple um, but the fish and the food stand, you know, should talk, yeah, yeah, talk, talk for itself. You've been nominated for a lot of kind of casual dining awards and stuff like that. Is that where you kind of see the future of Irish dining going in a more kind of casual setting? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I mean the Michelin guys um, and the fine dining, there's always going to be a marketplace for that. And it is beautiful for those special occasions. It is fa- fantastic. But I think um, uh, with the recession, it cleared out a lot of the old and... Um, We'll just say the old restaurants yeah. of Dublin, and it made a lot of room for new and you know chefs that are, and owners and restaurateurs and that have been abroad to come back and you know take a small premises and do something great with it. So the industry in itself has just come on you know leaps and bounds, and in you know in the last ten years, five years, even three years, you know it just keeps on going forward. A lot of these chefs are you know Michelin highly trained chefs that are absolutely gifted, but they're doing it in a casual, relaxed yeah. environment. So you know, like the way I say we're slapping the posh out of it, they're doing the exact same thing you know breaking down the boundaries they're still doing you know uh, great wine pairings and tastings and tasting menus and all these things but without all the without the price tag and also without all the palaver that needs to come with it so on a Monday Tuesday night you can go out and have a spectacular meal and not cost you the normal world and not have to be a big ordeal about it and that brings me on to your newest venture which is only a couple of weeks old at this stage yeah. tell me what it is it's claw poke so it's a Hawaiian dish traditional Hawaiian dish um, in simplest terms it means to cut poke is the word to cut in Hawaiian and it was a traditional fisherman's kind of lunch, little snack, um, out fishing, catch a little bit of reef or rockfish, dice it up and dress it with some sesame and soy and, you know, just eat it on the boat. And that's that's effectively, effectively what it is. It kind of advanced from then to, you know, using tuna as, you know, its proximity in the, in the Pacific to, um, especially to Japan, all the Japanese would be buying the tuna and buying the loins of tuna, which would leave, you know, the carcasses and things. So they'd scrape the bones and use that. So th- then tuna came into it. So... In the most simple terms, that's that's what poke is. I suppose over the years, it's developed into this kind of sashimi rice bowl, effectively. Yeah. Um, really clean flavors, uh, really clean proteins, um, and clean carbohydrates. It wasn't designed to be like that. It just kind of evolved in into being that 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 kind of that kind of food in Hawaii. It I suppose it's the equivalent to our chicken fillet roll. Yeah. <laughs> um, you're talking every petrol station, every corner right. shop will literally have a little poke section in it where you'll rock in and just get and get, get your poke. It's super simple. I suppose that's the idea I loved of it because it is so simple and because it's like the salmon and tuna and things like that, you know, they 
they're they're not very fragrant fish. Yeah. So it's the ideal thing if you're going to an office or you know you can't sit there with a tuna sandwich, but you can sit there with a poke bowl. So you know it's a little adventure. Every bowl is a little bowl of happiness, and it really yeah. is. You know you kind of get in and you know there's Korean flavors from the kimchi, and then there's sun and cucumbers and edamame beans and all these things coming in from coming from Asia. And then we've tried to use all the Irish ingredients, so all the different seaweeds coming in from the west and from the east. Um, we've tried to you know implement them and you know some great vegetables coming in from swords and things like that so there's a we're trying to I suppose I've tried to look at it as a bridge for the two islands to take an inspiration from one island to another island and how is it going so far I suppose brilliant. what's the reception been yeah it's been spectacular it's been brilliant um, and what's great is the same people in every day brilliant you know, people yeah. eat three four times a week um, it's just that you know for lunch especially it's that kind of you know amazing little you know healthy lunch you, you know you feel full but you're yeah, not going to your desk you know and you know and, and be you know pushed back in your chair um, so it's really good at that and then the evenings are great as well and we have the full yakitori so it's like a, a wooden char grill with pear wood on it okay. so we're cooking loads of local fish on that and then of course you get all your oysters and lobster rolls and all that craziness anyway yeah. I'm delighted to hear that uh, all the restaurants are going so well at the moment and thanks William for coming in not at all my pleasure Thank you for listening into this episode of With Relish. We would like to thank all our guests for taking time out to come on with us. As mentioned at the beginning of the show, we are a fortnightly podcast, so make sure to check out headstuff.org for our next show. You can download the show on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and all the usuals. If you like what you've heard, please let us know by writing us a review or following our Twitter page at With Relish Pod. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network.